Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. Hi, I'm Jessica St. Clair, but you can call me Jess if you're nasty. And I'm Dame Casey Wilson. We are actors, comedians, and podcasters. But above all else, we are self-appointed masters of small talk. We have written a soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning audiobook that will shortly change the course of history called The Art of Small Talk. Now, it's no secret that, that some people don't like small talk. Don't like it? Casey, everybody hates it. Except for us. We love to chit-chat bullshit, and that's why we wrote this book. Well, it's an audiobook. You're welcome. Who has the time to read? Not me. There will be research, but not too much, because what is this, a book report? We'll also hear from learned scholars like Malcolm Gladwell and from the most important people in the world, celebs like Amy Poehler, Tony Hale, June Diane Raphael, and Colin Quinn. You can grab your copy of The Art of Small Talk today at pushkin.fm slash smalltalk or wherever you get your audiobooks. Don't forget, you can listen with your Audible and Spotify memberships too. The Art of Small Talk. How to go shallow to go deep. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. Today, we're going to talk about how to prevent the coronavirus. Specifically, we're going to talk about vaccines and other approaches that might enable your body to fight off coronavirus before you get sick with it. In order to understand this complex set of issues, we're joined by Dr. Akiko Iwasaki. She is a professor of immunobiology at the Yale University School of Medicine. She and her lab are hard at work trying to understand COVID-19. And she's also been an extremely effective public explainer of the science behind vaccines in this current moment. Akiko, thank you so much for joining me. I want to start deep in the weeds of vaccines. This is your field. You've been crucial in explaining it also to the general public. What are the approaches that are being tried right now of the many approaches? So currently for COVID-19, there are over 90 different vaccines that are in testing. It's unfortunately very difficult to predict what type of vaccines are going to work for a particular disease. And so at this point, uh, we just need to try everything we can. And so there are many, many platforms that a vaccine uses. 
um, some of the things that you hear a lot in the media are these uh, nucleic acid-based vaccines, such as RNA or DNA vaccines. And these are very um, fast to make because um, once you know the sequence of the antigen of interest, you can clone these sequences or synthesize these sequences to make RNA or DNA. And you can just inject that uh, material into humans. And once they are incorporated into the cell, the cell can then themselves make the antigens. And so that is a quick way of generating a vaccine. Whereas other approaches take um, chimeric vectored vaccines, which means that the sequence of interest is inserted into another viral genome to make a a Trojan horse-like vaccine where um, that virus can then be amplified and given to people. And that's what the Oxford team is doing with the adenovirus vaccine. And then there are traditional forms of vaccines like uh, inactivated virus. So there are many, many ways to approach a vaccine. That was a really good three-part analysis of the different approaches. Maybe let's take them in the order that you gave them to me, which is sort of the order of how much attention they're getting at the moment. So with respect to the RNA DNA vaccines, has anyone ever made a successful RNA vaccine for a disease that's been tested and verified and actually worked? So there has never been a RNA-based vaccines that's approved for use in humans yet. So this would be the first of such kind if it becomes a successful vaccine. So if I understand the upside of the RNA approach is that it's one of the vaccines that if we were able to make it, we could then make it in very large quantities very, very quickly, which will be a challenge for other forms. The downside is it might not work. And this technology has been known for a while, I take it. So the fact that it hasn't worked yet is not because nobody's been trying. Right. The uh, vaccine research is um, expanding and evolving at such a rapid pace. So just because it hasn't been approved for use before this disease doesn't mean it's it's not going to work. And uh, the mRNA platform, yes, you're right that, that it has existed for a, a while. But for example, the delivery vehicle for the RNA has been uh, developed and made better. It is much more stable and much more likely to be taken up by cells to be expressed within the cell than, let's say, five years ago. So things are happening um, very quickly. It sounds like you are actually a little bit optimistic about the mRNA approach. Is that, am I reading you correctly that way? Vaccine is such an empirical uh, area of science that uh, without testing in humans, we can never really tell whether something is going to be promising or not. But uh, at this point, because of the severity of the pandemic, you know, we just have to kind of test many different platforms in the hope that one of them will work. Let's turn then to the Trojan horse approach, which the Oxford team is using. They have gotten attention in part because they've been saying that if they get good results soon, they might be able to actually have enough vaccine to use on medical professionals even by September, which is the kind of thought that makes markets and people feel very optimistic. Say more about the Trojan horse approach and what its benefits are. And again, tell us whether that has worked so far, because I know that team started by working on malaria and that hasn't totally worked out for them. And so they've then shifted to working on COVID. 
Right. So um, the Trojan horse-based vaccine is another area of vaccinology that has taken off in the last decade or so um, because of our ability to manipulate virus at every nucleic acid base um, resolution. So these are um, approaches that are really being tried in newer vaccines like HIV vaccines. A lot of the trials that are done with HIV vaccines use this kind of Trojan horse approach of cloning in the antigen of interest into a viral vector that we know can infect human cells but don't cause any diseases on their own. And so this is um, another promising approach to vaccinology because, you know, we just know very well how the virus um, enter a cell and uh, can inject the material that we want the cells to, to generate. And so, you know, while the malaria and HIV uh, vaccines have other problems and barriers to overcome, the hope is that for the coronavirus, because it doesn't mutate as, as much and it doesn't have many different life cycle stages as in malaria, that it would be easier to implement such a vaccine. Have there been successful viral vector vaccines, Trojan horse vaccines produced for other drugs? I think there have, haven't there? Yes, uh, there have been. For Ebola virus, for example, uh, there have been uh, several of these kind of Trojan horse type of vaccines that are pretty efficacious and safe. So I do have some hope in this type of approach as well. Has anyone tried this approach for other SARS viruses? Yes. So the SARS-CoV-1, the original SARS that, you know, uh, emerged in 2002, people have generated all kinds of vaccine platforms. Unfortunately, when the epidemic subsided because of public health control of that virus, there was no funding uh, or interest by sort of the public to pursue those types of vaccines. So unfortunately, we could have made a lot more rapid progress this time around had we pursued those original vaccine ideas for the SARS-CoV-1. And this is a lesson to, you know, the society that we really need to invest in long-term solutions to come up with vaccines uh, so that the next time there's a pandemic of a new virus, that we're much more ready to deal with these emerging infections. That's sort of astonishing. People were trying to produce vaccines for SARS-CoV-1, and then they just stopped because there was no funding? I mean, nobody thought, no foundation, no government, no one thought, well, gee, this might be back or something similar might be back. I mean, that seems sort of mind-blowing in a bad way. It is mind-blowing to most of us scientists working in these areas as well. And so, you know, I really think that we need to take this, um, unfortunately, an opportunity to really ensure more funding for basic research and vaccine research, especially because of the change in the world environment and ecology and so on that promotes the emergence of new viruses um, that we're hearing about all the time, like Zika virus and Ebola and many other viruses that uh, we will be facing um, in the future. And we can't just drop a vaccine trial or vaccine approach just because something is contained for the time being. That brings us to the traditional vaccines, the ones that we were all taught about as kids in school. Cowpox in order to fight smallpox, or the polio vaccine in its classic form, where you use a reduced or a weakened form of the virus. What are the paths forward for COVID-19 
with such a vaccine? Are there, of the 90 that are out there, are a bunch of them trying to use the traditional approach? Uh, Some of them are certainly trying to use the traditional approach. You know, I teach immunology to medical students every year. And one of the things I talk about during vaccine lectures is that the live attenuated vaccines are the most potent uh, and effective vaccine because it is the closest to the original infectious version of that virus. And so even though it's a very traditional vaccine approach that's been used for hundreds of years, I think we need to, you know, not forget that those are also approaches that we should pursue. Even though they're not the cool latest technology approaches, they, they might work the best. There's been a fair amount of attention to the theory that one of the classic tuberculosis vaccines seems to provide, at least in some studies, more general protections against things that aren't TB. And I understand that that is a somewhat disputed view among immunobiologists. I wonder if you would tell us what we ought to think about this theory and whether it holds water, and if so, whether this is something worth pursuing, or if not, whether it's uh, misleading and dangerous. So that um, is the thinking that BCG vaccine, which, um, as you mentioned, Noah, that is traditionally, I mean, it is currently used actually in some countries still against TB. And there is actually an interesting statistical sort of correlation between countries that still are using the BCG vaccine to the the rate of COVID-19 and mortality. And so, for instance, countries like Japan, who are still using the the original BCG vaccine um, in children, they have very low rate of infection as well as death compared to some other countries like the U.S., which has stopped using the BCG vaccine a while ago. This and, and other experiments have led to this idea that BCG vaccine gives a person a kind of trained immunity which means that our innate resistance against these viruses are elevated as a result of receiving these types of vaccines. And currently, there are countries like Netherlands who have begun to immunize healthcare workers with BCG in order to determine whether trained immunity is indeed elicited in those volunteers and whether that would prevent against non-TB-related diseases like viral infections. And there was even a a study done to demonstrate that BCG vaccination induced certain types of innate immune resistance genes to be elevated in human volunteers. So, you know, right now it's unknown how long such trained immunity lasts and how exactly that is working is still under investigation. We'll be back in just a moment. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers 
who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Hi, I'm Jessica St. Clair, but you can call me Jess if you're nasty. And I'm Dame Casey Wilson. We are actors, comedians, and podcasters. But above all else, we are self-appointed masters of small talk. We have written a soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning audiobook that will shortly change the course of history called The Art of Small Talk. Now, it's no secret that, that some people don't like small talk. Don't like it? Casey, everybody hates it. Except for us. We love to chit-chat bullshit, and that's why we wrote this book. Well, it's an audiobook. You're welcome. Who has the time to read? Not me. There will be research, but not too much, because what is this, a book report? We'll also hear from learned scholars like Malcolm Gladwell and from the most important people in the world, celebs like Amy Poehler, Tony Hale, June Diane Raphael, and Colin Quinn. You can grab your copy of The Art of Small Talk today at pushkin.fm slash smalltalk or wherever you get your audiobooks. Don't forget, you can listen with your Audible and Spotify memberships too. The Art of Small Talk. How to go shallow to go deep. Akiko, I want to turn now to the question of probabilities and time. These are huge challenges under the intense economic and health pressures that we're 
currently facing. So let's start with the time question. Assuming that one of these 9D vaccines or several start to be proven to work, what sort of time frame will it take to generate them? And what are the barriers to making billions, because we're talking about billions of doses quickly? Right. Um, so there are multiple barriers at each checkpoint. Uh, first, the vaccine has to be uh, not only effective, but safe in people. Since the vaccine will be given to millions, if not billions of people, we need to be absolutely sure about the safety of the vaccine itself. The second barrier is the safety with regards to infection from SARS-CoV-2. And that refers to this idea that there are some vaccines that unfortunately enhance the disease as opposed to protect the person against the disease. That has been seen with vaccines like dengue virus vaccines. And so we really need to ensure that not only is the vaccine itself safe, but is it safe for people who are going to encounter the virus, you know, following the vaccination. And so that safety and efficacy issue is absolutely key in, in going forward with any vaccine candidates. It, let's say we find such a safe and effective vaccine. Then the challenge will be manufacturing and scale. So we go from a, a couple hundred doses of vaccines in phase one and two to going into a large phase three trial with tens of thousands of people. And then after that, the efficacious and safe vaccine needs to be generated in the you know, millions or billions if we want to cover the entire world. And so that is a huge challenge for manufacturing because imagine having to generate, you know, billion vials to contain the vaccines or even the stoppers for the each vial, um, needles that have to be distributed. I mean, you can imagine the challenge in just generating that kind of doses of not only the vaccine, but its containment as well as a needle and the healthcare workers that are needed to deliver those vaccines to billions of people. So it's not as trivial just having a vaccine that's safe and efficacious. Uh, it needs to also be scalable to that level of um, distribution. Because if we don't have enough ultimately to cover a large portion of the human population, then there'll be inequity in terms of who's going to be protected going forward. And that's something we need to be very careful about, uh, distribution and um, equity in vaccination. No one's ever done anything like this at this scale before. So it sounds from what you're saying like there is a possible scenario where you could win in the sense that you got a vaccine, but lose in the sense that you didn't get the vaccine to people fast enough to actually substantially affect the course of the pandemic. Is that a plausible scenario? That is definitely a plausible scenario. And that's why we, you know, just because we have a vaccine, we cannot immediately relax all the physical distancing measures that we're taking. Because, you know, first of all, um, we need to wait till you have enough vaccines to administer to the population. And we need testing to see who's been exposed before and who has a virus still replicating in their uh, respiratory system in order to know who can safely go back to society and who needs to be quarantined. So, so testing and tracing and containment is still going to be important even when the vaccine is made. That brings me to a question that I've really been troubled by in recent days. I feel as though we've all heard 
public health officials and immunobiologists and others, vaccinologists saying to us, the soonest we could have a vaccine is 18 months. And then from that point, I think we've been making, at least I've been making the cognitive error of thinking that that means that we will have a vaccine in 18 months. Those are not at all the same thing. The idea is best case scenario is very different from what's actually going to happen, right? I invest in a company and someone tells me best case scenario, you'll become a billionaire, but the most likely scenario is that I will not. <laughs> I am worried about our collective almost belief at this point that we're going to get a vaccine. So I want to ask you about probabilities. Do you have the sense that of these 90 approaches that the probability is relatively good that one of them will work? Or do you think that we still can't say with great confidence that we're going to have a success? Yeah, it's like predicting the stock market. Um, I just, <laughs> I won't be able to say, yes, there will be a vaccine that's going to be successful. But my prediction would be that there will be a handful of vaccines out of the 90 that's being tested that will provide the level of protection we need to uh, reopen society. Let's not forget there are non-vaccine um, related interventions that we can take at the same time, such as development of effective antivirals and monoclonal antibodies that can be generated against the antigens of the COVID-19 virus. And so it is a huge challenge to distribute vaccine to everyone, but there are other measures that we can take in the meantime uh, so we don't have to rely only on vaccines to reopen society. Would you say more about the monoclonal antibodies and how they work? Yeah. So monoclonal antibodies, unlike vaccine, kind of sidesteps all the process that the immune system has to generate in order to make a antibody. So monoclonal antibodies are great uh, for blocking viruses and other pathogens because you know, once you uh, clone these monoclonal antibodies from, let's say, a person who has already recovered from the disease, they are a sort of precision tool that the immunologists can use to um, give someone a passive immunity. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to generate that antibody. You're just getting the antibody directly into your um, bloodstream in order to protect yourself from um, further encounter with the virus. And so you, you hear on TV lots of commercials that use the monoclonal antibody for, let's say, psoriasis or arthritis. And so many, many companies now have a great capacity and expertise to generate a very effective monoclonal antibody against um, a variety of things, um, including viruses and bacteria. So I think that leveraging the existing capacity as well as expertise of the pharma and biotechnology that we can quickly generate and uh, hopefully distribute safe and effective monoclonal antibodies. How long do those last in the body? I mean, do you need to take them relatively frequently? They're not a vaccine in the sense that you haven't taught your body to generate them yourself. If I understand correctly, That's right. this is just you're giving the body the thing it needs to do the fighting off. Exactly. So they must wear out at some point. That's right. So monoclonal antibodies don't last um, as long as if you had generated the antibody yourself. But, you know, it can last up to, you know, months 
you know, maybe up to six months or even longer with these like highly engineered monoclonal antibodies. And not only that, some monoclonal antibody have a vaccine effect, meaning that once the monoclonal antibody binds to the surface of the virus, that can sort of educate the immune response to generate more of these antibodies against the virus by sort of vaccinating a person that way. So, you know, the monoclonal antibody not only confers transient protection, but potentially can vaccinate you against the virus when the virus um, enters uh, the body of that person. Why do you think that we're getting a lot of public attention to antiviral therapies and a lot of attention to vaccines and comparatively much less public attention to the monoclonal antibody approach? Is that just because... It doesn't present itself as permanent or, I mean, tell me what, why. Because it seems, in a sense, it has an advantage that neither of the other things has. Namely, you don't need a new discovery to do it. Yes, that's correct. I'm also puzzled as to why there isn't more um, attention paid to the monoclonal antibody therapy. To me, it's one of the most promising area to pursue, Maybe it's, it's, as you say, people assume that it's a transient protection or that it's just the challenge of generating large doses is insurmountable. But both of these things may not be true if we have a concerted effort to do this. Is it your view generally that the ramping up process that we're engaged in now is sufficient? I mean, 90 different approaches sounds good to the general listener, we know that this is costing us so much money that there's really no limit to how much money we could throw at the problem of COVID-19 and have it still be cost-effective, assuming any of these things works. And even if it doesn't work, it's still cost-effective to be trying it. Do you think we should be doing much more than we're doing? Do you think our efforts are roughly appropriate? What's your gut sense of whether we're throwing enough resources at the disease right now? We are not throwing anywhere near enough resources at the problem right now. For instance, we still don't have enough testing throughout the country. And that is key in trying to reopen society. We also don't have enough resources being allocated for research and vaccines. For instance, you know, my lab is working on immune response to COVID-19, but, you know, there is no centralized funding mechanism to rapidly support such effort. And the NIH has announced several emergency funding mechanisms. And I'm hoping that some of these will come through. But I feel like, as you say, the economic impact of this pandemic is so large that no amount of, you know, this sort of ramping up of the resources is going to be a waste. Because if even one in a hundred of these things work, then it's, it's totally worth the investment. So I am a little frustrated as to how little resource has been poured to research as well as development of drugs. Thank you so much for taking time out of your super busy schedule of saving the world to talk to me. And thank you for the great, great clarity of your analysis as well. Thank you very much, Noah. Speaking to Dr. Akiko Iwasaki was really eye-opening for me on several dimensions. She's extremely forthright about the challenges and bottlenecks that face the process of producing vaccines on any of the three approaches that she described. Yet at the same time, she has an underlying optimism that we will eventually make our way to a functioning vaccine. What was also very striking to me 
is her emphasis on monoclonal antibodies. The antibodies would help the body fight off COVID-19, and although they don't confer a permanent immunity, they would, in the short run, potentially enable millions of people to avoid getting the disease. The most significant difference between the monoclonal antibodies and either the antiviral treatments, or alternatively the vaccines, is that they do not require any new science. We will continue to follow the monoclonal antibodies story and the vaccine story going forward, and we'll try to figure out how it comes to be that we haven't yet had the degree of emphasis on the monoclonal antibodies that Dr. Iwasaki thinks we ought to have done. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with research help from Zui Nguyen. Mastering is by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Hi, I'm Jessica St. Clair, but you can call me Jess if you're nasty. And I'm Dame Casey Wilson. We are actors, comedians, and podcasters. But above all else, we are self-appointed masters of small talk. We have written a soon-to-be Nobel Prize-winning audiobook that will shortly change the course of history called The Art of Small Talk. Now, it's no secret that, that some people don't like small talk. Don't like it. Casey, everybody hates it. Except for us. We love to chit-chat bullshit, and that's why we wrote this book. Well, it's an audiobook. You're welcome. Who has the time to read? Not me. There will be research, but not too much, because what is this, a book report? We'll also hear from learned scholars like Malcolm Gladwell and from the most important people in the world, celebs like Amy Poehler, Tony Hale, June Diane Raphael, and Colin Quinn. You can grab your copy of The Art of Small Talk today at pushkin.fm slash smalltalk or wherever you get your audiobooks. Don't forget, you can listen with your Audible and Spotify memberships too. The Art of Small Talk. How to go shallow to go deep.